discussing the attributes of God, it's a weighty and daunting task. And it's a, frankly, a dangerous, dangerous task because there's always the danger that you're going to blaspheme God as you talk about him. And the truth is that even in our daily conversations with each other, when we share about like how great God has been in our lives, how wonderful he is, we're probably going to blaspheme him because no matter how effusively, how wonderfully, how excellently we speak of him, we are finite creatures speaking about an infinite God with the hope of doing that description justice. And frankly, we never will. We're always going to get it wrong. One of the most important lessons I learned back in seminary is my professor, the first thing he said in my systematic theology class was, never forget, theologians never get it all right. Every theologian is wrong in some respect. And I would even maybe take that a little bit farther and say every theologian is pretty much wrong in every respect because we just cannot fully communicate the greatness of God in any of his attributes. And so, no matter what you might think of this message 30 minutes from now, the fact is, it's going to be a botched job. But I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm going to read something from A.W. Tozer, from his book, probably his most well-known book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And you know, if you're one of those people who don't read much, just read the first chapter, and it's going to, it's going to wreck you. But just in the second paragraph, this is what he writes. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. It's not whether, you know, should we get new lights? Do we need to redecorate? It's not even how do we engage the community? How do we do missions? It's always going to be the greatest thing, our ideas about God. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any time is given to say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move forward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians, the church and her ideas of God. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. And holiness, frankly, has become a subject that less and less teachers and preachers seem to want to address. We talk about how loving, how gracious God is, and he most certainly is. But we should never forget, he is a holy God. Let's pray. Father God, as we go into your word today, we are asking you to reveal yourself. 
I pray that you would just crush the, the impotent ideas that we have about you, the false ideas that we have about you, the, the ways that we have created you in our own image, in our own imagination. Lord, would you just dismantle those things, and today would you rebuild and rebuild again our vision of you. We don't want to accept you as who we want you to be. We want to believe you and receive you as you are. Is anything else, is our, our attempt to build our own idols, to create you in our own image, to create you in the image of other gods, to create you in the image of what we think we know, but Lord, reveal yourself to us in your word. We are your servants and we are your children and we're listening. We are looking. Show us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, there may be no book which is preached and studied less by Christians than the book of Leviticus. I almost dare anybody to tell me there is one book I read less than that. In the, in the Bible. You know, preachers may cite a passage here or there in the book of Leviticus, maybe even to shore up something in their sermon concerning another text. Maybe they'll do it two or three times a year. You know, students of the Bible might quickly read through Leviticus because they're like, well, you know, I can't say I read the whole Bible in a year if I skip a book. So they might just gloss through it, or you might even do, you know, and I confess what our family did recently as we're reading through the Old Testament, we skipped it entirely. And we just said, we're going to come back to that later. And I hope we will keep our word. The book is called Leviticus because there is a significant portion in there that uh, addresses the Levites, the people who care for the tabernacle and the temple. It's filled with rituals, Sacrifices, rules, laws, prescriptions. But the gist of Leviticus is this. So perhaps this will stoke the passion in you to go back and read the book of Leviticus. Because I believe the gist of Leviticus is that Yahweh, the one true God, desires to be in an intimate relationship with his people. But as in any meaningful relationship, you know, there has to be certain understandings between the parties and the relationship, right? You know, what are some of the expectations? Maybe even, what are the terms of this relationship? And I submit to you today that today's main text, which is found in Leviticus chapter 22, starting in verse 31, this is the bedrock of that relationship. The relationship between Yahweh and his people, so thus saith the Lord, in verse 31 of Leviticus 22, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. God has devoted the entirety of a book, the book of Leviticus. He's already spent... 22 chapters laying out rules, conditions, terms, 
prescriptions of how two diametrically different parties can be in an intimate, unified relationship. How is it possible? And God says, here is what I expect. And here's what you can expect. This is how it's going to happen. So 22 chapters of the term. And he's not done because Leviticus has 27 chapters and there's five more chapters of terms and it's found within the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is then found within 66 books of the Bible. But we're going to look at only three verses, or focus on them at least. And he begins by saying, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. So, as in, because of all of what I've just said, in the first 22 chapters, so... Here's my expectation. So shall you keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Does anyone recall, maybe you recall, my spiritual gift? It is the gift for stating the obvious. Remember that? So to tr tr being true to form, let me state something obvious. And it's something so obvious that we actually often neglect it. And it's this. God gives us his word, and he expects us to believe him. That's pretty obvious, right? I mean, otherwise, why would he say it? Why would he give it to us? But then he gives us his word, not only to believe it, but to obey it, to do it. I don't know if that seems profound to you, but when I heard the first person who also had the same gift of stating the obvious said it to me, I was just blown away. I don't know why I just thought that this was just a book of good ideas. But yes, he expects us to believe him and to obey him. So God says, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You know, Yahweh for 22 chapters, as I said, gave his expectations of this relationship. And in verse 31, and not for the first or the last time, does he say, keep my commands. In other words, mind them, observe them, do them, yes, obey them. Because I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. Because I am the other who is in this together with you in this relationship. Let me gloss over something. You know, you should never gloss over something vitally important, but I'm going to gloss over something important, incredibly important, and that God is not saying to Israel, obey my commandments, measure up, fix your sin and your brokenness, and come to me all tidied up so that we can have a relationship. No. God's not saying, once you get your life straightened out, we can be one. No, he's saying, come to me just as you are. And we'll see that as we continue to read. We obey God, not in the hopes of having a relationship with him, but because we have a relationship with him. Get that? Not because we are hoping to get a relationship with God, but because we already have a relationship with God. We obey him. In fact, the testimony of Scripture is clear. Without a genuine relationship with God, it's actually impossible to obey him. 
And three times in just three verses, God says something in repetition. He says, I am the Lord. And just a little helpful side note. You know, if, if you've read the Old Testament and you wonder, like, is this a misprint? Well, it can't be because it happened so many times. What is the significance of when they spell Lord with a lowercase l-o-r-d, then they spell it with an uppercase uppercase l-o-r-d, and then they spell it all four letters in uppercase l-o-r-d. Well, whenever you see, and you'll find this if you you ever read the preface of your Bible, there's actually some notes by the translators, and they'll tell you, why do we do this? And that L-O-R-D, that's in all capital letters, is their way of telling you, it's signaling to you, every time you see that, what's actually found in the Hebrew Bible is the name of God. And because we don't actually know what his name is, all we have is this thing that we call, the, the scholars call the tetragrammaton, which is four Hebrew letters, which we transliterate to Y-H-W-H. That's where Yahweh comes from. We just insert the vowels, and it could have really been any vowel because we don't know what vowels belong there. Sometimes we even use Jehovah because, you know, the J can often be, sound like a Y in some languages and vice versa. So anyway, whenever you see the capital L-O-R-D-S, all capitals, it's the name of God. And in case it doesn't, like, grab you, like, why does God repeat his name three times in three verses? That seems really redundant. If that doesn't grab you, let me point out that he actually does it 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Actually, over that number. You think God revealing his name might be important? If that old rule, repetition, means emphasis, boy, repeating something 6,500 times is probably pretty important. So three times in three verses, God will identify himself by declaring, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. We'll just use that because that's kind of our Western popular way of saying God's name. That's his name. In fact, the name of God is often understood to mean I am that I am or I am who I am. Or for like you could say it's kind of like the, you know, the nickname is I am. Why does God keep reminding his people of his name? And in this case, why so frequently specifying his precise name? And why does he do it? Because God, his name, is holy. The people are to remember and not forget that their God is holy. Yahweh should not be mixed up with any other gods by other names. I am Yahweh, and you shall not profane my holy name, in verse 32, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. God gives his name and then commands that his people shall not profane it. What does it mean to profane something? It's to deprive something of its specialness. Thank you, Daniel, by the way, for just sharing that little tidbit about you know, holiness. Because that's the primary meaning of it. It's that it's set aside. It's set apart. It's heads and shoulders above the rest. It's got a special purpose. But what does it mean to profane it? It's to degrade it. It's to lower its worth. 
It's to blaspheme it or insult it or to speak ill of it. It is to destroy, distort it or dilute it, adulterate or change it. It is to make something of value into something of less value. Or even to make it common or worthless. And God says, my people are not going to do that. Because I am Yahweh. That's why the third commandment of the Ten Commandments, and I quote, says this, you shall not take the name of the Lord, that is, again, Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So profaning the name of God is an act of disobedience and sin, an offense to God. Thus Yahweh, who just said to his people, so keep my commandments, he says, I am Yahweh. And you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. So this begs the question too. What does it mean that not profaning his name may result in God being sanctified among his people? You see, at some point, at this, or at least this point in Israel's history, they're traveling. They're between point A and point B. They're between Egypt and the Promised Land. And all along the way, they're meeting all kinds of people who have their own gods. And in fact, they're heading to, not only have they come from a place where they have people who have their own gods, they are going through places where people have their own gods, and then they're going to arrive at a place where people have their own gods. Some of them even worship Yahweh alongside their gods. But God says, my people will not profane my name. They are not going to degrade my name. They're not going to make my name like the other names. Because he's holy. And it says that I am going to be, he says, I am going to be sanctified among my people. And the word sanctified, you've probably heard that. You know, Paul uses that word sometimes. Sanctification is a theological idea. The idea is to make holy. He's saying God, God is saying you, my people are going to make my name holy. Meaning my people are going to set my name apart. I'm not going to be treated like the other gods of the land. And you know, folks, sometimes we think that it's only about a list of priority. As long as God's number one, then we can set next to him other gods. And we might say, wait, oh, I, don't, I don't have any other gods. I don't worship any other gods. Well, husbands, you set your wife on a pedestal right next to God. Wives, do you set your husband right next to God on a pedestal? Is it your home, your children? Is it your job? Is it your reputation? Your finances? What, what is it that we set next to God and treat it as holy? It's something that should also be set apart. And God said, there's going to be none of that. I alone will be holy. My people will sanctify me. God declares his 
peerlessness, his holiness, his incomparableness, I don't know if that's a word, but his matchlessness, that there's not even anybody, he doesn't even look in the rearview mirror and go, hey, there's somebody back there in number two. There's nobody back there because there's no one like our God. Amen? No one deserves to sit anywhere near that pedestal. For God to declare his name holy is to also claim otherliness. Yahweh communicates uniqueness to us. There are no gods like our God. But to declare his holiness, God also declares something that's called unicity. And that is to say God declares his indivisibility, his singularity. uh, Yahweh is not the sum of some parts. It's not like, okay, this part is his love, this part is his righteousness, this part is his mercy, this part is his grace, and this part is his holiness. No, it's to say that it is indivisible. God is holy 100% of the time. He is loving 100% of the time. He is merciful 100% of the time. He is righteous judge 100% of the time. There is no division in him. He is completely, simply one. And that's why every Israelite, every Jew, male or female, to this very day, must proclaim this first. They must learn this first and recite it first. And it is right from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. That's Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. So in commanding that his name not be profane, God is commanding that his name, Yahweh, not be made common, ordinary, mundane, or mediocre, listed among other gods. In other words, I am not like any one of the gods out there. I am not simply one of your gods. I am your God, period. That his name would be sanctified, made holy, made special, to hold an exclusive place, to have no competitors among his people. The term sanctified in English comes from the Latin, which, again, like I said, means to make, to be, to make holy, to be sacred, to be special, to be uncommon, extraordinary. And God and his name is never to become dismissible or ignorable or forgettable. His name is not like elevator music. We can easily just, eh, that's just in the background. No, God is the symphony of our lives. The symphony that gives us the beat for our steps and paces us in our walk. It is the symphony that inspires us to move from making decisions based on fear to making decisions based on our conviction. God is is the symphony that transforms our values. He is the one. He is the one that completely surrounds us. He is the one who completely takes over us. No more of this measured calculation in our lives. It looks more like reckless abandonment for God. Radical action. You know, 1 Peter 
Peter writes to the church and talks about action. It's not just lofty thoughts, but it's lofty thoughts that communicate in our action, the way that we live. So when people, you know, and you've met people like this, right? It's not just because of what they say, but you hang around them long enough, and then you go, that's a holy man. That is a woman of God. Because there's some distinguishable action. You know, when I was in high school, my Christ-following elder of his church, football coach, would frequently begin his inspirational speeches by reminding us of our priorities. And he would always put it in this order. He would say, after your devotion to God, family, country, and education, is football. And we'd all say, yes, coach! And I'll tell you, I respected him all the more because of the way he would start those speeches. And, and honestly, when I was in high school, I wasn't a Christian. I had some idea there might be a God, but I found something so noble that this man who in every other way seemed to think that football was the most important thing in the world, and it should be for us, made it clear, if there's any mistake, God comes first. And it made me, even as an unbeliever, think like, man, I better get my priorities straight. And then later on, I had a, my first real job was working for a financial management company, and my manager, who was not a Christian, would attempt to give us these similar kinds of inspirational speeches during our, our um, you know, management meetings and these pep talks, and he would start his priority list a little bit differently, albeit consistently, and he would say, team, after country, family, and then he'd always interrupt himself, and he'd always, and he says, then, he says, now I'm not even including God on this list, because if you have God on this list, I don't even know why you'd want to work for this company. It tells you the kind of company I work for. And before a year was up, I realized that too, and I quit because I was a Christian by that time. But see, he understood something. This unbeliever understood something that believers so often seem to not understand and appreciate. And that is, if you are in an intimate relationship with God, if God has any priority in your life, he's going to mess with your priorities. He's going to impact your values. And he, my manager, understood that if God had any place in his employees' lives, it was going to mess with their performance. Because there were certain things that they would need to do that there's no God on this earth who would approve of if they're going to be successful. And then, of course, that impacts him as a manager, right? His own performance, his metrics. He wants people who will say, I will do whatever it takes. And he wants them to have a very short list of, but I won't do that. And the reality is, is when we are united with God, even the book of, uh, book of Leviticus reminds us, when it comes to this world, there's going to be things that we say, but I won't do that. That's what a relationship with holy God does to us. Is it going to cost us? Sometimes. Is it going to bless us? 
I will say this in faith all the time. It will bless me. All the time. You see, my friends, when we align ourselves to a holy God such as Yahweh, there are going to be repercussions to our identity, to our priorities, to our existence, and even to our destiny. My former manager, as I said, just didn't have a place for people like this, people who had an intimate relationship with God. I am Yahweh. And then in verse 32, he says, And you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among my people Israel. I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. You're going to sanctify me. You're going to put me in a holy place. But I am going to make you holy too. Because the priority relationship for the people of God is the relationship they enjoy with Yahweh, we too will be sanctified. We're going to be changed. We too will be made holy, special, set apart, treasured by God, redeemed by God, sanctified by God. Having been claimed by the Holy One from among the people, Yahweh makes us holy. And isn't it interesting that after 22 chapters, and like I said, plus five more of laws and commandments and prescriptions, which Yahweh just two verses ago said, you shall keep my commandments and do them. He does not tell his people here that their obedience to all these commandments is what's going to sanctify them. It's not their observance of the law that will make them holy. He says, I will sanctify you. And let's consider for just a moment. Think about your most significant relationship. And think about how those relationships, maybe it's, you know, your marriage, or it's with your children, your family, it's your best friend, your boss, maybe it's your neighbor, whoever, whoever these people are. And maybe the relationships have been really positive, really enriching, and others have been just horrible relationships. And think about the way those relationships have impacted us. And it's the deeper we are in these relationships, the more those relationships leave a lasting impression. They rub off on us. Sometimes we might learn the most noble traits from the people we're close to. And other times, we learn our basest instincts. We hone them because of the people we're with. See, these relationships shape us and they define us and they even identify us. Because we hang out enough with certain people, we get lumped into their crowd, don't we? So Yahweh, in sanctifying us, calls us by new names and new designations. And these identities communicate our specialness to him, but also our specialness in the world. Our apartness, our holiness in the world. He calls us his people, his holy nation, his royal priesthood. He calls us his disciples, his servants, his friends, his church. He gives us the right to be called children of God. Sister, you are a daughter of God. And brother, you are a son of the Most High God. Let that just sink in for a second. 
want you to preach some truth to yourself. If you are in a relationship with this holy God, just whisper to yourself, whisper to your soul, I am a daughter of God. I am a son of God. And let that truth permeate you. Let it mold and shape your identity. Let that confound all those who have said you are no good, that you're worthless, that you're forgettable. And preach against those lies because God has said you are holy. You are mine. And who is this Yahweh that we should accept the terms of such a seemingly demanding relationship? You know, for Israel, Yahweh is the one who delivered them from slavery under the pharaohs of Egypt. He says, I am Yahweh who sanctifies you. And then verse 33 says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to, to be your God. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. For us, you know, the Apostle Paul, a man who, you know, before himself surrendering in faith, you know, to Jesus, had made it his life mission to destroy the church and to eradicate the gospel from the face of the earth. He meets Jesus, but then he tells us that God in Jesus Christ, his son, has also freed us from slavery, too. Just like he did for the Egyptians. Except it wasn't the pharaohs who were our taskmaster. It wasn't the pharaohs who were crushing us. It was sin. We were slaves to sin. So humor me for a moment and read with me Paul's explanation of this. Because I, I really can't imagine anybody explaining it better than he would. I mean, he is Paul after all. You know, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament. But I'm going to insert a few little um, additions, and I don't know if it's going to be up on the screen, but if it is, it's, it's only to kind of bring it into context, since we are reading a portion of Scripture out of its context. But in, um, <clears throat> in Romans, chapter 6, verse 16 through 23, and yes, if you know 623, it contains that verse that we all memorize in Awana. But he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, or to God, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. And what is that standard of teaching? Paul's talking about the law of Christ, the gospel. You've become obedient to the gospel to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And then he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And I think I know why he does that. I mean, this is just my, you know, uninspired guess. But it's just like, who wants to be called a slave of anything? Right? He's just saying, it's just an illustration, so don't get all, don't get your, you know, panties in a gather. You know, it's okay. Just think of it as an illustration. But he says, 
For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification or holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Meaning you had no obligation to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification or holiness and its end its result eternal life for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord so I won't try to unpack all that because I think you get it you get the illustration he's making right whoever we obey that's who we're slaves to it's going to be sin or it's going to be God So Paul's reminding the Romans that there is an end to the one you choose to obey. If you choose sin to obey, it leads in death. If you choose God, it leads to holiness, which leads to eternal life. Because you see, there's something far worse than being a slave to a pharaoh. It's some, there's something far worse than being a slave to a cruel, earthly taskmaster. It's sin. Because it will 100% of the time lead to our death and destruction. By the way, that's another lie that Satan likes to tell us. This sin won't lead to your destruction this sin won't lead to death. Just go ahead and do it. You'll see. And what do we do? But just like Paul said, we sin, and we sin some more, and we sin some more. It's a path that leads to death. But what does this freedom from sin and slavery to righteousness and God afford us? In verse 22 and verse 23, Paul says it leads to eternal life, right? The free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, our contemporary Western sensibilities really in some ways are not that different than, you know, the church in Rome that Paul was writing to in that we might ask ourselves, why would I want to jump from one kind of slavery into another kind of slavery? I mean, isn't all slavery bad? Well, I think it's like this. If Paul's right that whoever we obey is who we're slaves to, you know, there are certain forms of slavery, and we may not call it slavery, but man, am I glad I'm in those kinds of slavery situations. You know, believe it or not, I'm, I'm a husband, but I, I do obey my wife in many respects. And boy, am I glad I'm in that relationship. And I may not call it slavery, but I sure am glad that she's my taskmaster. So I don't get it when you see these single guys who are like, why would I ever want to get married? That's like the worst thing that could happen. Oh, it's because you don't know the joys, all the benefits of marriage. 
And there are so many relationships like that too, you know, including, you know, who do we work for? Why would we not work for this guy, but work for that gal? Well, in a sense, you could say because they're a better taskmaster. The benefits they offer, whether it's pay or a work environment or a, a title or just words of affirmation and appreciation, a bonus, whatever, makes him a better slave driver. And God offers us something that is so invaluable, so priceless, isn't it? He offers eternal life. He says he offers holiness. You're no longer going to be a number out there. You're not just one of the you know, run of the mill. You are mine. You're special. I've set you apart. So back to Leviticus 22-33. God declares, I am Yahweh. I am like no other. I am Yahweh. No one else can make you holy. I am Yahweh. I alone deliver you from your slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And I alone, my friends, God says, I alone deliver you from slavery to sin, which leads to death. I deliver you from that into slavery to righteousness, which leads to eternal life. Choose life. How's that for stating the obvious? Don't choose death, choose life. Remember, the people of Israel are en route to their earthly promised land, to Canaan. But even for them, it didn't take that long for them to realize the real estate called Canaan, called the promised land. They realized, man, this can't be all that there is. I think there's more. And then they start talking about things like Zion. And it's almost like a whisper. There's something else. God says it's called Zion. We call it heaven, glory, the new Jerusalem, whatever we call it. There's something God has for us too. And it's far greater than anything we can imagine or hope for. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, assures us that eternal life is the gift of God in Jesus Christ, and not only to us, but for anyone who will trust the one known to the saints of old as the Holy One. David and the psalmists, prophets like Isaiah and Daniel, Hosea, Habakkuk, those like Peter and Stephen, Paul and John, these and countless others called out the name of the Holy One, and were delivered. They were saved. Let me ask you to bow your heads for a moment. And whether you are here in this room, or you're at home, in your living room, in your dining room, and yes, we know some of you are in your bedroom, wherever you are, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes for a second. And maybe the Holy Spirit is compelling you to even maybe get on the floor and bow your knee to him and say, it's time to surrender because I'm offering you freedom 
from that old taskmaster who will kill you. And I'm offering you life. Surrender to me. Believe in me. I am the Holy One. I am Yahweh. And Paul tells us this Yahweh is actually Jesus. That if we call upon the name, and the Old Testament says, if we call upon the name of Yahweh, we shall be saved. And Paul quotes the exact verse, and he says, if we call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, we shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord as I pray with you. Yes, yes, Lord Jesus, we confess that we have been under bondage. We have been under the rule of a terrible, terrible slave master. And we hear your offer. We accept your offer in faith. And we believe you are a slave master like no other. You are a God like no other. You are Savior. That you are good that you are filled with love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Lord, that you are holy and that you will make us holy. And thus you will give us eternal life. We put our faith in Jesus Christ to deliver these promises to fulfill these promises to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe you've prayed it again because you just wanted to, as a, as a way of just rededicating yourself before the Lord, would you make sure you tell somebody? Tell your wife. Tell your husband. Tell your children. Tell your parents. Tell your pastor, tell your elders, tell somebody, tell your neighbor, because, you see, your neighbor needs to know the good news, too. And there's no better good news than the one that you share, because it's been good news for you. So let me recap. First, God is holy, and there is no other God but Yahweh. He's first, and there isn't even a second in sight. God expects that among his people, he will be prioritized above the rest. Second, by association to the Holy One, by our relationship to him, Yahweh makes us holy. Yahweh makes us holy. And in making us holy in Jesus Christ, we have been delivered from our slavery to sin and death into slavery to righteousness to God for eternal life. But doesn't, doesn't this also provoke like a few questions in our hearts. And here's just a few. Is God holy in my life, in my home, in my workplace, in my finances, in my successes and my failures, in my joys and my sorrows? Is he holy in every corner of my life? And then B, in what areas of my life do I need to see the Lord high and lifted up? 
Maybe there, if you think of your, of your life as like a house with many rooms and locks on every door, are there any doors that you refuse to unlock? And God, please don't go in there. It's a mess. Or you think you might actually be hiding it from him. Please, I don't want you to know about this part of my life. What doors do we need to unlock to God and say, God, wherever you want to go, make yourself at home. And finally, who needs to know that holy God desires a love relationship with them too? Who needs to know that through Jesus Christ, they can be sons and daughters of the Most High God. That he will make sinners holy. That he will wash away the broken and the wrongs and make all things new and right. Who needs to know? You know, I recommended this book by A.W. Tozer, and I'm just going to actually close in prayer today with one of his prayers. He has a short prayer in every chapter. And so let's bow our heads. In fact, let's stand together. <clears throat> Glory be to God on high. We praise you, we bless you, we worship you for your great glory. Lord, I utter that which I do not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you, and I abhor myself in dust and ashes. O Lord, I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, even twice, but I will proceed no further. Behold, you have chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. O Lord, forsake me not. Let me show forth your strength unto this generation and your power to everyone that is to come. Raise up prophets and seers in your church who shall magnify your glory and through your almighty spirit restore to your people the knowledge of the holy. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Worship, I don't, team, I don't know if you all are planning on doing the close. Well, thank you so much for everybody here. Maybe, you know, I don't know if you guys are going to have the little discussions you do after the worship service today. I don't know if that's been planned, but those three questions might be something to discuss over lunch today with your with your family you know is God holy in our house is God holy in my life is there any area of my life and in, in this house that we're not giving God access to where he can be holy and finally are there any around us neighbors friends relatives even enemies who need to know that God wants a relationship with them in Jesus Christ so let's think about those three things and discuss them. Go well.